Yeah, out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me as we read it together? I hope you have your Bibles open already this morning to 1 Timothy 1. We'll begin reading with verse 16. But I received mercy. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his uh, young Timothy that he has mentored for this uh, occasion, that he is, he's left him there at Ephesus at the church. And he said, look, I have received mercy for this reason, Timothy, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to you this morning to worship you in spirit and truth, we are grateful to have the privilege to be able to read the truth of your word. And we trust that you will take this word and convict us within our minds and within our hearts that our lives might be brought in line with your holy will, that we might walk in fellowship with you. May you be honored this morning, Lord, through our worship that is in spirit and in truth. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. I was sent a video this week of Andy Stanley. Y'all know who Andy Stanley is? Uh, he was uh, speaking at his church at the 2022 Drive Conference last May in the metro Atlanta area. Uh, Andy is a, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. His uh, father, Charles Stanley, is very well known and well liked by many of you. As founder of In Touch Ministries, Charles has been one of the most visible pastors throughout America for the past 50 years. His son Andy has made a number of controversial statements over the years, including his most recent support for embracing the culture's definition for morality within the church. I watched the video that was sent to me, and it appears, uh, and I, I don't want to um, uh, misunderstand or misrepresent in any way maybe the intentions of what he was trying to say, but it appeared that he was kind of berating the church for not being more accepting of the LGBTQ members. And he said, and this is a quote, I know what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says. I've read 1 Corinthians 6. I've read Romans 1. I've read Leviticus. I know Genesis. I know what the Bible says, but that's never usually a good sign. But I wish you Love the Lord as much as the gays in our church love the Lord. And, and while it, it seemed as though he was trying to make the point that many heterosexuals in the church didn't love the Lord 
or were not as willing to serve the Lord as much as those who were living homosexual lives, I, I, I couldn't help but wonder, what is your message? What is your message? I mean, you say you know the Bible. The Bible says this, but are you saying that as long as you love Jesus, that God's word really doesn't matter? Is that what you're saying? Are, are, are you saying the authority of God's word is not relevant to your church? When you say, I know the Bible says this, but I have a nephew and I have friends that I have met and known and have become very close to through uh, a lot of these are through my grandchildren playing sports and so forth. You meet other families and um, they are members. Some of these folks are members of the LGBTQ community and I love them. I really do, especially my nephew. And I can't help but wonder, is it loving? Is it? To embrace or to encourage any kind of behavior that would lead to divine judgment. Is that loving? I mean, the biblical text that Andy referred to but did not read, at least the 1 Corinthians text, Chapter 6, beginning with verse 9, says, Do you not know? Don't you know? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Christ by the Holy Spirit. In other words, somebody in Corinth loved those people enough and had enough courage within their culture to tell them the truth. A truth that led them to faith and repentance and reconciliation with the Lord, which ends up having an eternal significance upon their life, upon their soul. If, if we make ourselves adjudicators of truth, we are now the final source of authority. I know this is what the Lord says, but here's how it's going to be here within our church. How is anyone in need of reconciliation with a holy God through Christ? How are they ever going to hear or understand the good news of the gospel if they're encouraged to continue in their sin that results in judgment? I mean, this is the issue the church in Ephesus was facing. This is the reason the Apostle Paul has left Timothy there to straighten these kind of matters out. 
those in the church leadership, those who desired to be in leadership, they had swerved. See down at verse 6? You have your Bibles open, right? Look at verse 6. They have swerved from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith that has left people in the church wandering away into vain discussions. And so after reminding them of his own testimony in verses 12 through 15, he says, having been a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of Christ, look, no one could be a worse sinner than he was. So, verse 16, he says, but, this is the word Allah, same word that he used back in verse 13, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, there's the word protos, it means chief, <laughs> As far as Paul was concerned, there, are, there, there was nobody he knew of on earth that had been a worse sinner than what he had been. And yet he says Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So let me ask you this point. Did, did Paul receive mercy to keep him out of hell? No, that, that turned out to be a side benefit. Did Paul receive mercy to get him into heaven? No, that was a benefit also. Just a side benefit. Did, did the Lord show him perfect patience and then call him and redeem him so that he could write these epistles? No, the Lord could have had somebody else do that. So, so did he receive mercy so that he could preach? I don't think so. You say, why is that? Well, in Luke 19, I mean, the Lord said he could raise up rocks to cry out praise to his glory if he wanted to. Okay, so then why did the Lord choose? Why did he choose to save a guy like Saul of Tarsus? Well, Paul told us back in verse 15, the purpose for Christ's coming incarnate was to what? Was to save sinners. And Saul says, I'm living proof of it. The confrontation, the conversion, the calling of, of Saul of Tarsus demonstrated the perfect patience of our Lord. Remember in Israel and Egypt, uh, when they were in Egypt, in bondage, had been there for 430 years. They went down during the days of Joseph in uh, 1875 B.C. And around 440 uh, B.C., it's now time for them to be delivered out. And the Lord sends Moses. He calls Moses out of the wilderness, tells him to go back to Egypt and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said nine times, no, 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 no. Why? Well, the Lord said, I raised you up for the purpose of demonstrating my power. In other words, I didn't make you into a stubborn fool. I didn't have to. That was you. I just let you be you. But I used your stubbornness for my purposes. Because there's a death angel that's about to come. And only those covered by the blood of an innocent lamb will be delivered. Now, In the same way, I will use this stubborn fool, Saul of Tarsus, this little Fanny rooster of a Pharisee to demonstrate that there's no blasphemer, no persecutor, no insolent opponent of Christ that my mercy and grace are incapable of redeeming. See, in mercy, 
You do not receive the judgment you deserve. In grace, you receive the blessings you do not deserve. And so the Lord was so patient with Saul. He doesn't strike him dead as he justly deserved. So patient. Perfect patience. Just as he was with me. And if you're a Christian, just as he was with you. Have you ever thought about where you would be right now if the Lord had not been so patient with you? What if he had justly held you accountable for your sin prior to you coming to Christ? Where would you be right now? You'd be dead. And you would be experiencing the just wrath you earned that you deserve. Paul says in his testimony to the church at Philippi, he said, look, as far as keeping the law, I was faultless. In other words, I was about as good a man by religious standards as you're going to find on the face of this earth. I could hardly stand myself. I was so holy. And yet as I look back, it's clear throughout all of that, I was chief of sinners. I was a chief of sinners. So what caused you to change, Paul? Well, it wasn't those self-esteem courses I was taking over there at the synagogue. They, they actually... Um, were part of the problem. You know, I, I, I was taking those courses to be a better Pharisee, you see. But then he uses the word Allah. Verse 13, same thing in verse 16. But Allah, I received mercy. This is something I didn't earn, something I didn't deserve. In other words, my identity right now comes not from what I have done, but from what he has done for me. And this causes Paul to just erupt into a doxology. Do you see that? Doxa is the Greek word for glory. Ology is, is the word for study of. It comes from the word logos, word. So a doxology is words of glory. You know, the most, most common one we experience today, I think it was Thomas Kinn wrote this back in like 1600, 1685 or something like that. Um, He's praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above all ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. That's a doxology. Paul had numerous doxologies. You know, he's writing to the Roman, to the, to the Christians there in Rome, in Romans 15. And he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you abound in hope. That's a doxology. When he writes to the church there at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. A year earlier, when he writes the letter to the church there in Ephesus, he says to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations. That's a doxology. Well, here is another doxology. In this doxology, he tells us why we have to fight. We have to fight. Why? Because of the mercy that we've received. It's out of our love for the Lord and gratitude for his goodness. We cannot embrace and encourage others to live in rebellion to him, knowing that judgment is what they will incur. 
We can't do it. The very thought of leading other people astray into living inconsistently with what they profess and yet over here is how they live. He says you can't do that. Given the mercy and grace that we've received in Christ, our natural response is to sing the praises of his name. So he breaks into this doxology here, verse 17. To the king of the ages. He's talking, that's an expression for one who has no beginning and has no end. He is sovereign over all generations. He sovereignly reigns before, during, and beyond creation. He is immortal. He's not subject to, to destruction or decay or death. He is invisible. Man's senses, through scientific empiricism, they cannot discover him. He is only known by self-revelation through his word and in the person of Christ by the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit. He is the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen means so be it. Uh, if you look back into First Chronicles 16, when King David, remember that when he brought the, the tabernacle into Jerusalem. The first part of um, Jerusalem, the Jeru, that, is, uh, that word comes from when the Lord spares the life of Isaac on Mount Moriah. Remember that? Abraham gives that mount a name, Jeru. God will see. God will see. The second half of Jerusalem comes from the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. On this mount in Jerusalem, the Lord will see peace. And David brings in this Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark, the, coven, the, the, the coffin, four and a half feet long, two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet deep? And inside of that is God's word that is broken by his people. And he will look down upon his word that is broken by his people through the shed blood of one who is without blemish on the day of atonement. Yom Kippur, the day of covering. And so when that ark is brought into the holy of holies within that tabernacle, it says that David, remember? how David danced before the people and the people all began to dance in the streets and they said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And what's verse 36 say in 1 Chronicles? And all the people said, amen, amen, so be it, so be it. That's why these doxologies end with amen. You know, if I am saved by anything that I do, when I die, I think it would be appropriate, don't you, that the angels would all gather and, and, and rise to their feet and applaud me, right? What if we were to queue up the highlights of, of um, my, my life this morning and you'd see me as a boy going to Sunday school. I was a cute little fella, curly hair. Next, uh, next slide, please. Oh, this is... Uh, me as I am um, kicked out of Sunday school in the fifth grade for fighting and told not to come back. Let's go on to the next slide. This is me in high school after I have been out of church for seven years. 
We probably need to fast forward to this because I don't think you can show this kind of stuff in heaven. And there are still folks out there who if you told them I was your pastor, they would shake their head in amazement and go, I went to school with him. And it is hard to believe that God's grace is that amazing. My favorite trivia question for my grandchildren when they're studying U.S. history is, which president was governor of two states? And they always research it, and they come back, and they go, well, none of them. And I go, that's not true. It was Sam Houston. And they'll say, Papa, Sam Houston was never president. I said, well, that's not true. He was the sixth governor of Tennessee, and then he left Tennessee and went to Texas and was president of Texas. And then he helped get Texas into the Union and became the seventh governor of Texas after that, right before he died. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with this text? It has everything to do with this text. When Sam Houston was baptized after years of battling heavy drinking, violent outbursts, multiple marriages, the preacher's name was Rufus Burleson. He was the second president of Baylor University. He baptizes Sam Houston, led him to faith in Christ. And when he baptized him, he said, Sam, your sins are washed away. And Sam said, may God help the fish. <laughs> in other words, Sam was in his 60s. He was amazed at the Lord's patience with him. He was overcome overcome by the mercy and by the grace of the Lord. You know what his family put on his tombstone? Among other things, they put a consistent Christian. A consistent Christian? Sam Houston? Are you kidding me? That's a description that Sam would have quickly explained. No, 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 no. I don't deserve that, and I didn't earn it. If you're going to put consistent Christian down on that, that has to be the latter part of my life. And it has to be to the glory of God's name. His perfect patience with me. You know, giving praise to God's glory is not something that I can teach you. You know why? Because it's not something you can learn. Praising God to the glory of his name is something you have to experience. When you realize you don't deserve his mercy and grace didn't deserve Christ you don't deserve the eternal life that you have in Christ you don't deserve any of the blessings that you're receiving right now and you know what when you realize that no one has to beg you to come to church no one has to beg you to give or to serve or to, to be a Christian who walks in fellowship with a holy God no one has to beg you to do that. Once you understand the truth that it was not you who made a decision for Christ, it was the Lord who by his mercy and through his grace made a decision for you. But God made me alive in Christ, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Here he says, but I receive mercy. A doxology isn't just a song we sing. It's the central, central reality of our lives. 
That's why if you come across anybody that struts into church and they're really proud of how much they know and what all they've accomplished and how good they have been and, and how long they have been a Christian and all that, what you're looking at, what you're looking at, when you see them, you're looking at an oxymoron. Someone who believes that they've accomplished in their life what it actually was the Lord who accomplished it. And yet they think they did it. And that's why Paul, after he gives his testimony in verses 12 through 16, that results in this doxology in verse 17, what would you expect to read in the next three verses? What do you think it's going to say? Paul says, I am chief among sinners, protos. But that's not the point of the text. So what do you think the next three verses to the people who have experienced the mercy of God, who have been entrusted with rightly handling his word to the praise and glory of his name, what do you think the next three verses are going to say? You know, if I were a part of the demonic realm, I, I, was, I was eternally entrenched in rebellion to the God of the universe. And there was this group of people who came together on Sunday who had been spiritually dead who could never have come to the true knowledge of Christ on their own, and yet they have received mercy. They have been redeemed by God's grace. You know what? I would hate them with a passion. And you know why they come together? Oh, it's not to pray, because they'll have even greater fellowship with the Lord in heaven one day than, than what they experience through prayer here. It's not simply to know the truth. They'll have even a greater understanding of the Lord and his word in heaven one day. And it's not simply to fellowship with one another. Their fellowship in Christ will be even greater in heaven one day. So it's not simply all of those things. What is the primary reason they come together? That you come together. What is it? You're here to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And you leave here. You leave here to take that marvelous message of God's redemptive mercy and grace to a lost and dying world. So what would you do to those people? You know what the demonic realm does? Attack. Attack their faith. Incinerate their doctrine. Make it to where all they have to offer to people is a beautiful building with a big Bible that has been gutted. With a message about a Savior that no longer saves. Have them to deny the authority of Scripture. Have them put themselves in a position of being the adjudicators of truth. I know what the Bible says, but... Here's what we say here. Here's what our church, where our church stands. Have them to believe that marriage is not a sacred gift designed by God, but it's, the, the culture's new definition of marriage is far better. It really is. It's, it's more inclusive. And the church has no obligation, has no responsibility to correct it. To correct that which is unacceptable in the presence of a holy God. You know, if I were part of the demonic realm, that's exactly what I'd tell them. I'd, do, I'd be like a spiritual taxidermist, you know. I'd just gut their house and leave them with nothing but a historical Jesus 
who isn't truly God and, and is no longer really a savior and is certainly not sovereign. I would attack their morality in a way that, that they would end up being no different than the world around them. And you know what I'd tell them? It really doesn't matter what you sing or what you believe or what you teach, so long as you just love Jesus. Love Jesus on your terms, by your definition. You'll be just fine. You'll be just fine. Would you expect in the next three verses to see an all-out war occur with the demonic realm? That those who are called out for God's glory would be at war over the truth of his word versus the lies that are told by men? Would be in an all-out war between Christ their Savior and the doctrines of demons? I mean, it's why Paul says this charge, uh, that, that word there is, that's a military term. It's a command. It's, it's not something that Paul felt like they needed to sit down and to discuss and come to a conclusion about. No, this is a duty to be performed. He said, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. So why is this spiritual warfare? You know, Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 28. Not positive, you might have to check me on that. But uh, Ezekiel uh, chapter 28, when he was talking about the king of Tyre, and also Isaiah, which I think is in chapter 14, when he's talking about the, uh, the king of Babylon. You know, they're talking about how wicked these two guys are. And both of them go in that text, they go behind the leaders to see who it is that is motivating these wicked men to behave in such rebellious ways. And they start describing Lucifer. Lucifer and this legion of corrupt angels that are, that are together with him. And so the point is, it's not just Bill or Jack or Joe or John or whatever within the church when they attack within the church it's not just them it's the one behind them the one that's behind the chaos that they are causing who wages the war and so he's saying Timothy look here's the charge I'm going to entrust you holding faith and a good conscience that's in direct contrast back to verse 6 do you see that those who swerve from a pure heart good conscience and sincere faith having no clue what they're talking about this is in direct contrast to them do you remember what I said to you and what was said about you when the church ordained you there in Lystra? Do you remember that, Timothy? When they prayed over you, when they laid hands on you, when they set you apart for ministry, which Paul will address uh, later in chapter 4. There were those who saw the Lord's calling upon your life. So don't forget what it is you've been commissioned to do. Don't forget who it is you serve. You're going to have to fight a good fight. Don't buckle under to these knuckleheads who are trying to get people to get on board the Titanic. You go to them. You correct them. And listen, if they remain unrepentant, you expose them. And you remove them. But don't you yield to them. Don't you do it. My great-grandfather, 
whom I dearly loved. Uh, I loved staying on the farm with him and getting up at four in the morning and milking cows and feeding chickens and hunting and doing all kinds of stuff. He died when I was eight years old. And so his wife, my great-grandmother, moved in with her daughter, which enabled me to see her even more frequently than what I got to, to see them before he passed. And I dearly loved that lady. She was, uh, she was precious, but she was also strange. And it, it wasn't just the fact that she was, you know, a lot older than I was. She was my great-grandmother, but she just, she just seemed odd to me because from the time I was a small child, you know, she would say to me, every time I left their home to go back to my home, she would say, I pray your preaching will save many souls. Who says that to a child? I had no intention of being a preacher. Even after I quit going to church for seven years, every time I saw her. I mean, how is my preaching going to result in anybody's salvation when I'm not even a Christian? And she kept praying. And she kept saying that to me. I ended up becoming a Christian my senior year in high school. And so then I go four years to college. And so five years after I become a Christian, where am I? I'm in seminary. In seminary? First sermon I ever preached, uh, my grandparents brought her up to the church to hear it. She was in her 90s at that point. I still remember the sermon, Genesis 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And there she sat, little gray bun on top of her head, Coke bottle glasses, big old smile on her face. One long after that that she went to be with the Lord. What's that got to do with this text? Eunice and Lois taught Timothy the sacred scriptures from his youth. Paul, in his next letter to Timothy, will encourage him to fan into flames this marvelous gift the Lord has given him. And the church encouraged him to use this gift when they laid hands on him and set him apart for ministry. And Paul reminds him of this as he encourages him to fight the good fight. Don't forget what was previously said to you, Timothy. Don't forget it. Never back down from the demonic realm that seeks to infiltrate the church through guys who swerve from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Holding faith and good conscience, you fight the good fight. You know, the reason that I shared what I did about my great-grandmother is that I hope it encourages you to never underestimate the power of the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous individual, as James said. Um, it was my great-grandmother's prayers for me that was the model for how I prayed for my girls as they were growing up, that they would marry Christian men and bring my grandchildren up in the truth of God's word. I prayed that so many times as my great-grandmother had prayed for me. But my great-grandmother, she knew the Lord personally. And she spoke with him personally about this rebel grandson of hers. Eunice and Lois taught the sacred scriptures 
And I don't think there's any question that they prayed for Timothy. No question about that. And the seeds of truth that they planted in his life, the Apostle Paul would come along and water them. And then the Lord would provide the increase. And so all Paul is telling him now is, Timothy, now it's time to fight. It's time to fight. You've been prepared. And he had written to the church the year before in the book of Ephesians, very end of it, he talks about wearing the belt of truth, gird the belt of truth around you and go to war. Go to war. What are the consequences if you don't do this? Verse 19, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here's two guys who punted biblical truth. And, the, and, and Paul turns them over to Satan, not, not to punish them. That's not what that's about. It's to correct them. They no doubt met, met with these guys. They studied with these guys. They probably prayed with these guys. And these guys would not listen to the word of the Lord. And they would not listen to the elders of the church. So for their own good and the good of the church, the foxes must be removed from the hen house. I mean, what do you do with mavericks who see no need to be accountable to the authority of God's word? What do you do with them? You know, the word heresy comes from the Greek word for to choose. To choose to depart from truth makes you a heretic. So Paul uses really strong language here. I've turned them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. The Bible is the Lord's word to dying men. So before he tells Timothy what a deacon is and what he ought to do within the church, before he describes an elder and what an elder is to do within the church, before he describes women and what they are to do within the church, he spends the entire first part of the letter on who is the church. Who is the church? We are not a legalistic people with a message of condemnation. We are a changed people with a message of salvation. A people who worship a gracious God who has shown his mercy. Who can save anyone, no matter how awful they are. But there's a narrow way. You have to come to him on his terms, not on yours. Not on yours. This message is so critical that anyone who changes it, distorts it, or rejects it is not, is not to be left in the church. So the most loving thing we can do is what Paul did, turn them over to Satan. Why? That they may learn, that they may learn. You do not blaspheme a holy God and then claim to be a Christian. So why do we fight this formidable fight? Well, for one thing, we are recipients of God's mercy. How can we do anything but that, given what he has shown to us? For whom do we fight? Well, it's not ourselves. We do not fight among ourselves, and we do not fight for ourselves. We fight for the only true God. And how do we fight? Holding to faith, rooted in truth, in a good conscience, 
in how we rightly handle it. And fourthly, against whom do we fight? Those who wage war against the Lord and his people by distorting or ignoring or changing his word. This is a military command to fight, to fight a formidable fight because men's souls are at stake. Well, if you have any questions, you can go to the connect table or you have more extensive questions and you want to take issue with something, you can always come to my study throughout the week. Before we uh, close with prayer this morning, I, I just want to extend sympathy to um, one of the families in our church, just precious, precious people that I dearly love, Roy and Debbie Butcher, upon the passing of uh, Roy's uh, father. This was not uh, something they were necessarily expecting, and yet he, he passed away this this. Um, this week and and so I just would ask for you uh, whether you know the butchers or not I'm telling you sweet sweet people and so if you could just pray for them this week that that he and his family will be strengthened as they go through this time of sadness let's stand as we pray together our heavenly father Christ said he who is not with me is against me And given the mercy and the grace that you have granted to us, may that never be the case within this church. Lord, I pray that we would always stand in faith on the truth of your word with a good conscience, knowing that one day we will hear you say, well done. And Lord, if there are any in this place this morning who need to bring what they believe in line with what you have revealed in your word, And then walk according to that in obedience. I trust that you will motivate them to do so. Because your word will not return to you void. And I pray that you will take what you have revealed to us today. And by the power of the Holy Spirit. Bring us to a conviction that leads to obedience. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. So be it.